0: My name is Chuck C. and I'm an Hi, uh-huh. Hi. I don't know uh, when I have felt uh, any more grateful than I do tonight. This gang that has come down here to hear me bark for... About six sections officially and sixteen unofficially. (coughs) There's something else. And it's a great tribute to me for those of you who came down here to listen. And for those of you who came down here to get away from your wives. (laughs) I thank you for coming too. But it's, uh, it's a beautiful sight standing here and looking at this. You. You're a great bunch, and I love you. This has been an eventful week so far. I had to give a uh, funeral on Monday in Pasadena. Chap who was 51 and who was. getting an AA pitch, and right in the middle of it, he went down and didn't get up. Hard to say. And so that was Monday and Tuesday. I had another one. This was one of the original members of the Compton Group. Came in just after it was started. Old Tex Mullis. And Tex had been sober for 21 years, and uh, he did it sort of the hard way because he was a compulsive gambler, too. He loved to gamble, and he won and lost once in a while. The last time I knew him to be in Las Vegas, he won $17,000 on the crop table, took it up to his wife and said, now you send this home. And she didn't. She put it in the... safe, in the hotel. And he lost the motor before he got out of the place.
1: So,
0: it wasn't too bad for him, because he thought that was a great joke. He blamed his wife entirely,
1: because he had told her to turn it home. Well, this time he went
0: up again. And... uh he left with a heart attack. So I'd uh, put him away on Tuesday. Wednesday I got my 29th birthday cake, which is something for a tongue chewing babbling idiot drunk. 29 years without a drink of pill. And that was pretty nice. And here to finish the week out... I have you people to share with and to be shared with, and I'm, again, very grateful to you for coming. I thought tonight <coughs> we might just uh, think a little about the problem to get started. This retreat is supposed to be in all of our affairs. The 12 steps says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, meaning the first 11, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. In all of our affairs. And thinking a little about the problem, I have to think a little about a Texan who uh, was the first chap that sobered up in Houston. He has, I guess, close to, if not already, 35 years of sobriety. He's uh, half a Texan wide and uh, Texan a half tall. And he tells a little story. He says, "If you're going to solve a problem, it helps if you know what the problem is." <laughs> For instance, says he, "I've always been afraid of dogs." He says, uh, "Some little old girl come walking down the sidewalk with a great dane on the leash, and says she's not afraid of them at all." He a poodle runs out and I take off. And he's that high, you know. I can just see him running from a poodle. And he says, this caused him a lot of embarrassment in his life. And it finally became necessary for him to look at the reason that he was afraid of dogs. And he, he looked and looked and he started to turn the pages of his life back and he got clear back to where he was seven years old. And he remembered that when he was seven, a little, uh, a dog bit him. And that was the reason he was for dogs. But he said that didn't completely satisfy him. And so he looked at it again, and he saw that the reason the dog bit him was that he was chasing a little girl at the time. Now since he all my life. I've been chasing women and getting in trouble and running from dogs, and dogs never were my problem in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So he says it helps to know the problem. And I think it helps to know the problem. And I'm going to tell you what I think the problem is, and I'm going to tell you what I think the solution is, and there'll be some of you that will not agree with my thinking, and that's perfectly all right. But if I talk, I have to say it as I see it. So, our immediate problem when we came here was booze. the thing that ran it in here. It ran me in in a hurry after 25 years, <laughs> <clears throat> because I had used every resource I had, and I had lost the battle. So I got here at the ripe right old age of 43, I failure in every department of life. Failed as a husband, a father, a businessman, a man, and a drunk. And I had run out of everything, including people, places, things, money, whiskey, and home, and everything else. And there wasn't any place else for me to go but here. However, on my last trip out. I had a very great good fortune. The bottle killed me. The bottle beat me to death. Beat me into total and absolute nothingness. And only then could I come to investigate. Alcoholics is enormous. Up until that time, there was no way that anybody could have talked me into coming here. long as I had the power of choice, my choice was never to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and never came until I'd lost everything including the power of choice. And so I would say to you right off the bat that the greatest single event that has ever happened in my life, and I'm 72 years old, happened in January 1946 when the bottle beat me to death. Had it been necessary for me to consciously surrender the first time I would have died without coming to this program, there was no way that I could surrender. I had never admitted defeat one time in 43 years of life, not the God, man, woman, or the devil. The word surrender wasn't in my vocabulary. It had been bred out of me for generations. So, thank God, on my last trip out, the bottle did it for me. The roadblock was burned out, and I got to the program in a state of total abandonment of self. When I got here. And everything in the fifth chapter of this book was something I wanted to do the first time I ever heard it. The very first night when I heard this thing read, everything in it was something I wanted to do. And I'm certain it was because of the total state of abandonment of self in which I got here. Now, There was one thing that I didn't think I could do, and that was step three, and it wasn't because I didn't want to. I had no objection to step three. I would have turned my will and my life over to a jackass if I could have gotten rid of me. But where it says we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to care of God, as we understood him. I didn't think that this was possible for anybody like me, because I didn't think it was cricket to believe that I could give the mess that was me to anybody, let alone to God. I wouldn't have taken me with a large dowry, and I didn't figure God liked me any better than I did and I hated my guts so I let it lay I just let it lay picked up the last third of step 12 and practiced these principles in all of our affairs now after attending a meeting every night for six months I discovered that I was sober and had been without a drink or a pill for six months which was quite a discovery because I'd attended every one of those meetings with a great trip on me that I couldn't have this thing, that I didn't have enough left physically or mentally to get it. And after six months of a meeting every night, I discovered that I'm sober and have been all the time. And at that time, I started getting a little attention to step three. Because I was thinking, well, maybe there's some way that uh, I could come to feel that God would take a package like mine, and I couldn't, I couldn't uh, get any solution to the thing. I was messing with it for quite a little while, and finally occurred to me, your father. And then I started conjuring up the most heinous crimes I could imagine and laying them on these two boys of mine. And I let my imagination go crazy, building the worst possible kind of crimes that anybody could perpetrate. And when I got that done, I would say to myself, now, would this keep me from wanting to see my boys? Would these things make me want to cast them into perdition to burn for eternity? And I had to say no. I couldn't do it. No way could I, regardless of what they did, no way could I assign them to hell. And so I came to believe that maybe uh, the Heavenly Father being a good guy, you know, and me an evil one, Maybe he would uh, forgive me. And I uh, got comfortable that it had to come through that kind of procedure with me. Now, the funny part of it is that when I got... When I discovered that I'd been sober for six months, I had to get lost in trying to give this thing to alcoholics because they'd given it to me, drunks. Had given it to me. And I lost myself working with drunks. And after a while, I had another discovery. And that was that something had happened in our household. A year before, Mr. C. was divorcing me. The kids wouldn't come home when I was around. The boss man was going to throw me through the window if I ever stepped foot in the plant again. Had no health, no sanity, no home, no job, no nothing. And it appeared that the war was over. The household was living like kittens. And that was a good discovery. That was about a year after I got here. And another six to eight months went by, and I made another discovery. And that was that I was still trying to clean up my desk at the office. We'll talk a little about this when we talk about, A, in business, or practicing these principles in business. But here I was, still trying to clean up my desk at the office. And business was good. It was plum good. And that was a pretty good discovery. Maybe another year went by, And I discovered that the state of my being was better than anything that I had ever dreamed of in my life. My uh, livingness, being itself, was better than anything that I ever dreamed of. And that was a good discovery. And now five, maybe six years have passed, And I made another discovery which I believe to be the great discovery. When we make this discovery, the search is over and life begins. Life isn't over. Life just begins. Really. And this discovery was that I was never alone anymore. I, who had walked alone for 43 years, totally alone. I was never alone anymore. I had a God of my very own. And where I am, he is. I'm often by myself, but never alone. And this has been the way it's been ever since the discovery and it's the way it was before the discovery. Because I hadn't been, a, been alone since my first meeting. Now I believe that this program of ours, the Alphabetics Anonymous program, is a program of uncovering, discovering, and discarding. That's the A program to me. Uncovering, discovering, and discarding. The first nine steps of the program are the uncovering steps. Clearing away the wreckage of the past. Squeezing us out of ourselves, ego wise. To get rid of the human ego. Temporarily. Because we never get rid of it totally, in my opinion. I am convinced that nobody can honestly take the first nine steps in this program without making the discovery that something has happened, and it's, it's very, very terrific. Because when we honestly apply the, apply the first nine steps of this program to me, I apply it to me. At number ten, we go temporarily gone. Now, I am convinced in my own mind, totally and completely convinced from the toenails to the top of my longest hair that there's only one problem in this life, one problem that includes all problems, and one answer that includes all answers. Now, that's oversimplification, isn't it? One problem that includes all problems, and one answer that includes all answers. I am totally convinced that the only roadblock between me and you and me and my God is the human ego. The only roadblock there is. I further believe that the best definition you'll ever hear of the human ego is the feeling of conscious separation from. the feeling of conscious separation from. From what? For the day. From God, I like to use three words, life, good, God, which to me are synonymous words. Conscious separation from God, from each other, and eventually from ourselves. That is the thing that says to me, here am I, big me, little me, smart me, dumb me, rich me, poor me, against the whole world. I've got to outthink, outperform, and outmaneuver in order to eke out a miserable living out of an unfriendly universe. Whew. That's what they laid on me as a kid. The very creatures of life. The early bird gets the worm. The devil takes the, the most. You got to be there first to, to the mostest. Builds on that <laughs> premise. Am I against the whole world? Got to outthink, outperform, and our maneuver. Consciously separated from each other and from God. Now I think that's the greatest roadblock there is. The only one, as a matter of fact. The only roadblock there is. Between me, you, and me, and my God. And that's the human ego. The seat of all the obsessions of the mind. That's where we come from. (coughs) Now, It is also my total conviction that there is no possibility under heaven to satisfy the human ego. It is a divine impossibility. I like to sit up there in my big chair, many of you have seen it. Some of you have sat in it for a minute, but I won't let you sit in it much longer. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: and I look down on top of that little town Ligur Beach beautiful shoreline the channel right straight in front of my uh, Avalon on Catalina Island it's about or maybe it's from where I live but it might be 34, 35 miles to the island. <clears throat> and I look down at that water, that channel, and that's 25 miles just the top of it. It's deep, too. <laughs> and I say to myself, suppose that entire channel was bourbon whiskey.
1: <laughs>
0: now, that's quite a few drinks. <laughs> Would that satisfy my obsession for whiskey? And I have to say no. The whole damn thing could not satisfy my obsession to drink. Because when I get started drinking, before long I'm flat on my back in bed, drinking the clock around, and every time I open my eyes, I drink. And there's no way to satisfy that obsession. No way. Now, suppose my obsession had been for money instead of drinking. How about that? It's totally impossible to satisfy an obsession for, for dope. Now, I had a client for many years, lived in even he was a student. And the Syrians talk the Jews and the Armenians about business.
1: (laughs) Syrians can starve an Armenian to death.
0: (laughs) And I had this chap. And he'd gone from one head of lettuce to 35 million bucks. And he was uh, one of the poorest men I ever saw. Because, unfortunately, he had a partner in one of his business enterprises, which happened to be oil. And this old boy was worth 150 million. (laughs) Lad Sweet, the Jonathan Club, most beautiful thing you ever looked at in your life, all paneled with the finest wood in the world. Gun racks, elephant tusks all over it, and feet and Gazelles and everything else, you know. And when I'd be sitting there with the two of them, Eddie was trying to get under the diving fort. Poor thing. He had only $35 This year ship was on steel with $150 million.
1: <laughs>
0: <coughs> Poor man. <coughs> Eddie used to say to me, Charlie, I was Charlie in business. How can I be like you? And I'd say, Eddie, you can't. And he'd say, why? I say, who needs God if he's got 35 million bucks? <laughs> don't be silly. You can buy anything you want, including women, and you do. And that's one of the Syrians' great uh, allusions. They think they're not just the women, and maybe they are, I don't know.
1: <laughs>
0: <Bam>. <laughs> not being a woman. But anyhow... Who needs God when he's got 35 million bucks? And I says, you go ahead and make 150 million, and you will if you live, because everything that old boy touched turned to gold. And when you've made 150 million, you will have been found that it won't do for you what you have to have done right here. Then you come to me and says, Charlie, how can I be like you? And I'll tell you, and you can do it, but not until... And he'd say, Well, talk to me about it anyway. And we'd drive all over the state of Arizona, talking just like we'd be talking here, you know. But poor he didn't make his 150. He got so many things in his head that it exploded. He was ten years younger than I, and he's been gone, what, five, six years? He died. It's impossible to satisfy an obsession for money. Suppose my obsession could have been for power. How about that? No possibility. Witness Watergate. There was a nice power struggle. You know? It's absolutely impossible to satisfy an obsession for power. If you're president of the United States, no good, because every dictator in the world has more power than our president. Oh, Genghis Khan had more than all of them. <laughs> so, no way. What about women? I started to say sex, but that brings up a bad connotation. <laughs> I've been getting invitations lately to go up and talk to the uh, (laughs) devious, and that bless me, I can't hardly make it. So so far, I've been able to to sort of have some other thing to do or get something else. So, let's say women. Suppose my obsession had been for women. And supposing that I had been the greatest lothario of all times. And supposing I had captured every tick chick I set out to catch, but one. Now, at my age, I'd be pretty good army, don't you?
1: <laughs>
0: Would they satisfy my obsession? For women? Uh-uh. This one kills me. The one I can't get kills me dead. So, if you can't beat them, join them. We've got to get rid of the obsessions of the mind. And in order to get rid of the obsessions of the mind, we have to be rid of the ego. Because that's where they come from. I want or don't want, I like or don't like, I yi 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 That's it. Now, that's the reason that the wording in this book is like it is. There are 452 pictures... In the first page and two paragraphs in our chapter 5. Boy, there's a lot of things said in that dealie. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed that path. Now I I hear people get up here and say that they have heard Bill Wilson say that there's one word in the book that he would change if he was doing it again. And that would be to take out the rarely and put in never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. <clears throat> well, Bill didn't say that to anybody because he knew why put rarely in there. As he had a said, never have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I see uh, about four people at the front table looking out at me. That would have said, oh, they've never seen a failure. Oh, well, by God, I'll throw them <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's the reason that's really. And Bill did tell me that himself. I happen to know him pretty good. rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Now I heard that read one time uh, which I think maybe is even better than it shouldn't. Some guy got up here and he read it rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly enjoyed our path." <laughs> I think mean, that's terrific. I put in a chance in that page, you know. It's very good. Those who do not recover are people who Cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually, men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being rigorously honest with themselves. Being honest with themselves. Honesty. And following the path. There's two pitches right there. To be honest and to follow the path. They're naturally incapable of uh, grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Now there's a pitch. Grasping and developing. You see, we're people who never were able to settle for status quo. Never in our lives, long before we ever had a drink, we were unable to settle for status quo. Nothing that was normal ever merited our attention for more than a split second. If it wasn't better than normal, we didn't like it. And that's before we ever had a drink. So, we had better jolly well grasp and develop because a happy sobriety will turn into a drunk unless we develop we've got to walk we've got to keep going all we need to do is get fat and complacent and quit walking and we're in trouble so grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty is, is a whole Weekend. There are such unfortunates, They're not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. That's a line that I get the hell out of there. I don't like that line because in 29 years I have had, I don't know, probably 500 people tell me that they're sure that they're naturally capable. <laughs> i will being honest with himself. Naturally, incapable of it. Well, I'm sure that if you're still breathing, there's uh, and you don't have a two or three of those wheels missing entirely. There's no way that you can hide behind that. But it's it's sort of a thing that we use once in a while. <clears throat> Their chances are less than average. There, those two suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders. But many of them do recover if they have the it fast, to be honest. I gotta tell you a little story. Many of you've heard it, I'm sure. But in the early days in Los Angeles, we didn't have any body out here that ever attended in any meeting. And uh The Jewish gentleman came out here with a book. He didn't know he had it. He uh, came to in Palm Springs. And he started looking for his luggage for some whiskey. And he found this book. That's first edition, I read it. And he didn't know how it got into his suitcase. But he didn't have any whiskey. <laughs> and so he read it. And he just kept reading it. And he, uh, liked it. He liked what he read. And he came into Los Angeles with this book. And he got a hold of some people and they started a meeting. And, uh, they didn't know how to start a meeting. And so the custom that has spread pretty well all over the world was established right here in Los Angeles. The first meeting. That's reading in portion of chapter 5. This Jewish boy says, I don't know why I started meeting. But he says there's a chapter in this book entitled How It Works. And it gives us this thing, and let's read it. And they read this portion of chapter 5. And you'd be surprised how much of the world that's covered up until now. They do it in Australia. They do it in New Zealand. They do it in Canada. They do it in Texas. It's bad for them down there. We <laughs> a conference in uh, Oklahoma City. And there's a lot of Texans up there, you know. One of these Texans says, uh, Oklahoma is just an outlying portion of Texas. He says, outlying hell is You're the worst liar in the world. <laughs> so, they read this all over, and it's beautiful. Every time I read it, it reminds me that my survival depends on this thing right here.
1: Now, a little bit
0: later, this bunch, maybe there are half a dozen of them at this time, got a hold of an old boy off Skid Row. His name was Whitey. And Whitey had been a little bit too close and too long with the Dino. And he babbled all through the meeting. He'd just sit there and babble. And he was bothering. So he decided they ought to take him to the doctor and see what was... The matter with him. So they did. They took Whitey to the doctor, and this doctor took a few quick passes at him, and he says, boys, give him up. This one you can't help. Spend your time on somebody that's got a chance, but he has such bad brain damage that you're just wasting your time. And so the next meeting, of course, they had a discussion about Whitey. And the whole gang of them wanted to uh, dump whitey yeah, they keep him from interrupting the procedure with his babbling. And of course there was one guy there that uh, had read something in the book. And he said, "Wait a minute, boys." He says, it says right here that the only requirement for sobriety is a desire to stop drinking. And Whitey wants to get sober. And we can kick him out. And they said, that's right. That's what it said. And he didn't kick Whitey out. And it's a matter of medical record and a record that one year later, Whitey was accepted in the United States Marines. There's a miracle here. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of these do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our story is in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Why are those phrases in there? Why do we go clear back here and let First, se- first line of the second paragraph, chapter three. And we read a line that says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves, that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. Why? Why is that through back here? First line of the second paragraph, chapter three. Program of recovery is over here in five. It's there because if we be alcoholic we are caught in a trap we cannot spring. We have to have help. And we can't get help until we recognise the need for it. It's impossible. We're a peculiar breed of cats. We can't hear it, we can hear it, we can't see it, we can see. And don't make a better difference who's talking. For instance, a number of years back in the state of Virginia, I spent a good deal of time with a great celebrity, films and TV, and he and his wife were both out. And... I was very fond of him, and I was very hopeful that something was going to happen. And we sat for uh, almost all day in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. And this guy's wife, everything I said. She said, why? Mm -hmm. That's the way I live. uh, I've known that forever. And I talked a little while along. She said, that's the way we raised our kids. This is not new to us. We know the whole thing. And it went that way all the morning. Well, they didn't know that I knew that they'd just gotten out of managers. <laughs> Both of them. <laughs> managers, for those of you who don't know, is a booby hatch. <laughs> that they need this all backwards and forwards and through the middle, but they never heard it, and they didn't hear it when I said it either, and you're going to hear a lot of things that you think you know this weekend, maybe you do, you may hear a lot of things that you disagree with, that's all right to me too, if you disagree with them and know why you disagree with them, maybe you should be up here and be back there. But that's the way it's, that's the way it's going to be. The second condition, of course, is that sobriety has to come first. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, that's top man on the totem pole. And I'm one who believes that unless and or until sobriety comes first, we can't have it. And unless it remains first, we cannot keep it. That's what it says here. This is very, very positive stuff. And are willing to go to any length to get us in your ready fixes. Some of these we bought. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. This isn't a headache we're talking about. We're talking about a terminal illness. The disease of alcoholism. A terminal illness. That's why these things are in here. Really because we have to have health. And we got to recognize the need for it before we can get it. And it's got to be tops. Top man on the totem pole. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and results wouldn't help. Until we let go absolutely. It doesn't say half majors available to 50%. Ten percent majors is available 10%. It says half majors available to nothing. Not a thing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandonment. We let go absolutely. Still up here without help is too much for us, but there is one who had all power, that one is God. May you find him now. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Now this is our prob- problem. We're caught in a trap we cannot spring. We've already been to human health. The first time I heard these steps, one and two were since I knew that I'd lost the battle of life. I didn't know anything about alcoholism, but I knew I'd lost the battle of life. And I knew that my life was unmanageable by me. And I still know it. And it's never changed. It's still unmanageable by me. It's no problem to me. two-fold admission of defeat in the first one and admission that we're nuts in the second. There are two big steps for Alki. The first two. Lost the battle of life, number one. You're nuts, number two. (laughs) So you need help and you need it back. And if you're like me, you've been the preacher, the priest, the doctor, the guy who knows more psychiatry than the rich before you ever got to this place, to step three. And so you know you need help. And you can't get it from human power. So we make a decision to turn around and allow those over of God. Now this is one of the things that we're going to be spending time on. This is the most fantastic thing on the face of the earth. There's nothing that will compare with this. The thing that happens to us when we do this, not when we read it, when we do it, to abandon ourselves completely to this simple program. So out.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Hmm. Welcome, gentlemen. We made a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care <clears> of <throat> Now, I don't suppose that there's a man in this room that analyzed himself and decided to turn himself into Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe there's one of you. No bunch that did that. If there had been any way under heaven for me to remain in left field, I'd still be out there. We're not the kind of people that run around surrendering on every other street corner. (laughs) That isn't our uh, way of doing things. And here we have, we've lost a battle of life, and we're nuts, and we have to have help. Now, I told you a little bit ago that the greatest single event in my life up until now, and I'm 72 years old, was when the bottle killed me in January 41. 40... January 46. <clears throat> I was 43. I had read Jack Elder Journal's article in the post. In March of 41, Mr. C. had found it, read it, opened it to the right place and put it on the arm of the chair I sit in right now. <laughs> and when I got home, I read it. I was four sheets in the wind when I read it. And I suspect I thought that was real really good for you people that needed it. I imagine I did. But five years later, when I came to after a four weeks blackout, my last drunk started on the Friday before Christmas, nineteen hundred and forty-five, and I came to sometime after the middle of January forty-six. And I don't remember that the time was, but the calendar said it had been. And during that four weeks, the thing that had stopped me was burned out. And I accepted the fact that everything dear to me in life was gone and should be gone and that I was not entitled to have it back. That was including my wife. And my kids. And my home. And my job and my health and my sanity and my money. It was all gone. And I wasn't entitled to have it back. I knew I was going to die because I'd come within an eighth of it the next to the last time out. I'd fallen over on my face and floor in the kitchen, turned blue. And they'd had to get the oxygen squad to wake me up. And the doctor that was with him told me after I came to that to all intents and purposes I was dead that they'd had a hell of a time bringing me back. And that they would nobody would ever be able to bring me back again under those circumstances. And, says he if I were you I wouldn't do that anymore.
1: Said that right to me. (laughs)
0: But I heard it again. So I knew I was going to die, and I accepted that, too. But I didn't want to die with the records. Now, I want you to listen to this, because this is a little bit different than a lot of things that happened. I didn't even want sobriety for myself, because I knew I was going to die. I didn't want nothing for me. But I didn't want to die with the records. I didn't want Mr. T and the kids to remember me as nothing but a tongue-chewing, babbling, idiot, drunk. And in the depths of this thing, I remembered that I'd read the article in the Saturday evening post. And the only two things I remembered about it was that drunks helped drunks and didn't drink. And they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said to myself, if I ever live to get out of this bed, I will find Alcoholics Anonymous. And immediately the cur- curtain dropped. Just like that. Bang, it dropped. There was no more sanity. I was sickened to death, drunk, and insane. And I had a lot of dying to do. But from the moment of commitment <clears throat> until right now, I've never had a drink of filth. Now, this is one of the reasons that I believe so completely and totally that there's only one bro- roadblock between me and you and me and God. And that's the human ego. The only roadblock there is. Because, you see, I sit in the same chair today that I sat in for ten years in hell. The same chair. And I sat in it for 29 years in heaven. Nothing happened to the chair. Nothing happened to my wife. Nothing happened to the kids. Something happened to me. And it proves that heaven was always in that chair. I was in hell. But heaven was always in that chair. but nothing happened to you. And I'm still in it. Still in the heaven. So, that's the reason that these... these statements are so very, very positive to abandon ourselves completely. To the let go absolutely, It says. And to turn their will and their lives over to the care of God. Now this is the problem. <coughs> Something has to happen that we get rid of the obsessions of mind, and that's what this program of ours is all about. The American Medical Society. We have some of the most Illumined members right here. (laughs) American Medical Society says alcoholism is a disease. It has symptoms. It is treatable but not curable. And the only way an alcoholic can successfully live is not to take the next slug. But they cannot tell us how not to take the next slug. They can't tell us how. That's what this book is all about. To tell us how. To get rid of the obsessions of the mind that cause us to drink. That's what this whole program is all about. To rid it of the obsessions of the mind that cause us to drink. Now, why am I not drunk tonight? It's a good question. I'm a tongue chewing, babbling idiot, drunk. Why am I not drunk tonight? This is Friday.
1: <laughs>
0: Thursday night kickoff night,
1: right?
0: <laughs> you start around the machine on Thursday. You get her in high gear on Friday. You pay it Saturday. Sober up Sunday Taper off so you can go to work Monday Some Sunday you taper off So you can go to work some Monday Why am I not drunk tonight? Because I have the thing I was looking for in the bottle And that's the only reason I'm not drunk That's the only reason I'm not drunk I had the thing I was looking for in the bottle. Now, what is the thing? (coughs) That king-size hurt is gone. You know the king-size hurt. The kids uh, call it that hole in their guts when they're standing on the street corner and the wind's blowing through. That's what the kids call it. When I first heard him say that I said they don't they have been to a meeting somebody They heard that. They stole it from somebody that knew what he was talking about. But that ain't right. (laughs) I learned that ain't right. (laughs) They were the guys that coined it. Standing on the street corner with a big hole in their guts and the wind blowing through. Big hurt. That's gone. I'm not fighting me or you or life or God or the devil. I am at peace with me and with you and with my very own God. And that's the only reason I'm not drunk. When I say I am an alcoholic, it means this. That I cannot live and drink. And of myself, I cannot keep from drinking. And that's just as true right now as it was 30 years ago. That's step one, says so as we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that allows had to become unmanageable by us. And I've looked all the way through this and through the manuscript from which this was written and from, through the most recent book that was printed, and there's nothing in any one of them that says that if I'm sober 10 or 12 or 29 years, my life will become manageable by me. They don't say that, I look. <laughs> <Not in there. laughs> and furthermore, there's nothing in my experience in twenty nine years that would indicate that my life will ever be manageable by me again. But thank God it is no problem to me. Because I have step eleven. I have lived by step 11 for 29 years. Sought to prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for knowledge of his will for us and power to carry it out. I have lived in total expectancy of and for 29 years. And I get it. And you might say, how do you know? I've got the simplest room in the world. I never had it so good. This is the only good life I've ever known, the only easy life that's ever been mine in my entire lifetime. And I've got 29 years to look over sober without a drink or pill, 25 years drunk or drinking, or 19 years before that. And this is the only good life I've ever known, the only easy life that's ever been mine. So I highly recommend it. This is the way to get rid of the obsessions of the mind. Here are the steps we took. We're sober. Now don't say here are the steps we read or heard read or learned by heart. Don't say that. Don't say here are the steps we interpreted. You can find that in here. Don't say that. Don't say here are the steps we conned God into taking for us. There have been a few people around this neck of the woods that, uh, were experts on interpreting the steps. There's one guy out in the valley there for a while They was selling interpretations of the steps and teaching interpretations of the steps. And then he got drunk. <laughs>
1: <laughs> His business went
0: down uh, the right rabble. Don't say that. It says here the steps we took. And the reason we have to take them is because we're caught in a trap we can't spring. We have to have help and can't get up until we recognize the need for it. Now, going on down to to step nine, and I've just got time, uh, Mr. I won't mention his name, but his initials are Johnny Cream, senior. He said he was sleepy when he came in, and if I thought a second after 9.30, that he was going to sleep right on the table there and start snoring. So I got to quit. <laughs> but very quickly... The first three steps are deceiving. The fourth and fifth are action steps. We made a searching fearless moral inventory of ourselves. We write it. The book says very, very specifically that it's good to write it, write the thing now. We're more apt to do it right if we write it. It takes a little longer. It's good for us, so we write it. That's a moral inventory, so we don't have to write every time we turn left when we should should have turned right. It don't mean that we have to put down everything we ever stole, or every lie we ever told, or every time we ever got drunk. <clears> that don't. That does not what it means. It means to write down enough that we can see the motivation for what we have done up until now the motivating force in our lives, and of course, if we want to get real simple, the whole thing will boil down to obsessions of the mind, which is the ego. Every one of them will boil down to trying to satisfy the human ego, which cannot be done. So we write it down, then we share it. With God, ourselves, and another human being. Another human being is the uh, thing that really uh, sets us up <laughs> for the kill. I can admit to God and to myself, hidden in the privy. You know, nobody knows but me and God. But if I have to spread this dirty linen out before another human being. Man, if you've got any ego left after that, you ain't done it.
1: <laughs>
0: That's an ego buster. And so we've written it and shared it, and now we've become willing to give it away, and we give it away. Again, we got two action steps in there. These, these, these next two are not action steps. They're, again, decisions. Now I find people all over the world beating their brains out, trying to get rid of the obsessions of the mind. their defects of character. And I bet you there have been a million hours spent in arguing over why step six has, we're totally ready to, have God remove all these defects of character, and step seven says, humbly ask Him to remove her shortcomings.
1: And there have been a million
0: hours spent on what's the difference between shortcomings and defects of character. You know? There's supposed to be a difference. I asked Bill. He says, I don't know. He says, I think I didn't want to end two lines right next to each other with the same words. <laughs> Doesn't
1: mean
0: the same thing? So that's going to knock a lot of arguments out, isn't it? But the main thing is that we become willing to give them away and we give them away. We don't don't do these things. If we could have done away with our defects of character, we would have done it before we came here. I wasn't just jumping up and kicking my heels together, saying, Goody, goody, I get to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I'm sure my mother didn't raise me to be a member of our college Anonymous. She's 96, and she don't believe it yet. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's good around. I
0: think I've had... Twenty-nine years out of drunk, I drink, and she's in oh, that night, juice. <laughs> but
1: <forgot> about that? <laughs>
0: so, we become willing to give them away, and we give them away. And then we've got two more in the first ten. Two of the greatest ones left yet. The most immediately effective steps in the whole program. Or eight and nine. We made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Made direct amends such people wherever possible. Except one to do so would injure them or others. If you haven't done that, do it. Do it, do it, do it. Quick. The way of the world is removed from your shoulders when you honestly take care of eight and nine. And I'm going to tell you this little story, and uh, it won't take that long. I'll still get down. One time. Many of you have heard it, but it, it curls my hair. Yes. About ten years ago, I got a call on a Friday night just like this. From a guy in the Whittier. And he says, Chuck, I'm sitting here with six-gun in my lap, and I'm going to blow my brains out. But he says, Jim, don't shoot yourself until you've talked to Chuck, Chuck C. And he gave me your number. And I'm called and I'm ready to talk. So what do you got to say? (laughs) And I said, you called on a bad night.
1: (laughs) I said,
0: I'm talking tonight, tomorrow night and Sunday night. But Monday night's open. So if you want to see me come down Monday night. And if you don't, blow your brains out. And
1: that's
0: exactly what I told him. And at 7.30 Monday evening, the doorbell rang. And in came my boy. Now, let me tell you a little story here, uh, within a story. This Jim was Jim Willis. And Jim Willis was Sybil's husband for many years. Sybil was 14 years in the central office. And Jim was a compulsive gambler. And Jim started the Gamblers Anonymous thing and wrote their book. And he'd already done that, and then he became an alcoholic. And he called me one time and said, come get me. And I said, where are you? And he was in his office on Pico. No one got him. And he got sober. Now Jim is losing his eyesight. He's sure. He- And he's sort of a sick man, but he's sober. And I talked with him on the phone just the other day. And he's pretty happy. But anyway, it was this Jim that told this guy, because he not only was an alcoholic, but he was a compulsive gambler. And Jim had told him to talk to me before he blew his brains out. Well, here he was. And we started talking. Now, at 2.30 in the morning, we were right where we are now, at 8 and 9. And I was telling this monkey, now here's what you gotta do. You see he lost a lot of money that he didn't have. And he had lost it to professional gamblers. And that ain't a very healthy situation. (laughs) It don't it don't do much for longevity. So, here he sits, and I'm saying, now listen, here's what you got to do. And you got to go to these people and say, look, I am not the big shot I would have had you believe. I'm an alcoholic. And I found a way to live that might let me live one day at a time without a drink for the rest of my life. And one of its conditions is that we got to make amends, and that's why I'm here. Now, you he, I admit the debt." I said that I was going to, you know, this is what he had to do. You go to him and say to him, I admit the debt. I'll leave you the money. And I'll pay you as soon as I can. But I ain't got no money now. Why, if the truck can't do that. They'll kill me. And I said, So what? You won't have suicide on your mind.
1: <laughs>
0: and the old boy started to laugh, and he's still laughing. And he's walking the streets, free man. Ever since, the, he was laughing right over the hill, you know, and he left me. And he never quit. And he paid him off. Nobody sh- killed him. So one of these things, so if you haven't done eight and nine, do them. The weight of the world goes right off your back when you do them. Now, to finish up. Alcoholism cuts across our society from the highest to the lowest. We are peoples of all professions, all states of poverty and riches, priests and preachers from all denominations we have in this deal. We have world scholars amongst us. Bankers. No one of whom would have come here if they could have stayed out. So, we have a problem that you and I cannot solve. We have to have help. And those first nine steps will roll away the stone. Because those are the surrender steps. The surrender steps. Surrender is the thing that opens the door, that allows us to get the help. Because God himself cannot help us until we will allow it. The recognition of the need for help And the turning of our will and our lives over to the care of God, and the clearing away of the wreckage of the past, is the beginning of victory. It's fantastic. Don't be afraid of it. Now, I'm convinced that you and I have to do this without getting too serious about it. We get too serious and nothing happens. If we look too hard, we'll never find. I looked for this thing for 30 years before I got here. And I couldn't find it. I came here not looking for it, and it found me or we found each other or something. Wasn't even looking for anything but a way to live one day at a time without breaking. So I could rub out as much of the record as I could. So, I want us to have a lot of fun this weekend. Don't be too serious. You know, rule 62. (laughs) Some people put it on their license plate. Rule 62. It's a good rule. There's a little book about that tall... And about that wide, and it's green, the it covers, and on the f- front cover it says Rule 62. And you open it up and you look, and every page in the book is vacant except the double truck in the middle. And it says, Don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. <laughs> And that's what we want to do here this weekend, have a lot of fun, not get too serious, but realize the problem that we have that we cannot handle on our own, and to come to see totally before this weekend is over that what I can't do, we can do, with the grace of God. God bless you. Thank you very much.